Hello and welcome to Hillsdale College's online course on the Supreme Court. I'm John J. Miller, director of the Dow Journalism Program here at the college, joined today by Stephen Markman, who is a justice on the Michigan State Supreme Court, also teaches constitutional law here at Hillsdale College. And in your background, you were a Department of Justice official. You were an assistant attorney general. And before we jump into the Second Amendment, I want to ask you a little bit about that experience. You helped the Reagan administration select judges at all levels, from, from the Supreme Court down to some of the lower federal courts. What was that like? What is that process like? What were you looking for in judges at that time? Well, we had different procedures for the Supreme Court than uh, for the lower uh, circuit and district court judges, but I, I think it's fair to say, as, as your question suggests, that um, we were looking for the same thing for all those judges. We were looking for individuals who understood that their obligation was to reason from the Constitution. And in the words of um, John Marshall in our first uh, great Supreme Court decision in 1803, Marbury v. Madison, to say what the law is rather than what the law ought to be. Uh, federal judges, just as with state judges, have a single dominant authority, and that is to exercise the judicial power. And the judicial power is one that's always been understood um, as um, one involved in giving faithful meaning to the words of the law, whether the law reflects the Constitution, statutes and ordinances elect, uh, enacted by uh, the legislative branches of government, or the law of contracts. So in each of those areas, our, each of those areas, our responsibility was to try to identify persons who uh, shared all the neutral judicial values in the sense of being experienced and thoughtful and fair-minded and balanced, but also people who understood that their responsibility was to operate within the context of our system of separated powers by exercising exclusively the judicial power and not infringing upon the powers properly belonging to the other branches of the national government. As a practical matter, how did you do that? Did you say, uh, how would you rule on such and such a case? Did you have a litmus test, or, 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 or was there another way of getting at the, uh, the, 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 the substance? Well, we had no litmus test, as that term is generally understood. Um, that is, uh, a judge who had committed himself to ruling a particular way on a particular case. We were demanding, in terms of a judge, understanding the limited role of the judiciary, and we attempted to discern that by an extensive um, series of interviews at the Justice Department and extensive background checks and any writings or decisions they may have previously written and interviews uh, with people who knew them back in their district. And of course, at the end of the day, after we had uh, tentatively selected candidates, we had extensive um, um, uh, background investigations by the uh, FBI and the Senate Judiciary Committee and the Justice Department and putting all these things together we attempted to the best of our ability to identify people who shared the president's values as to what a judge ought to properly be doing but of course we were predicting 10 20 30 years into the future and um, it's um, it's not a science it's not a mechanical process but we did the very best we could in um, uh, asking judges what, um, uh, what we felt we needed to know about their approach to giving meaning to the law. Let's talk about the Second Amendment now, which is okay. the, the subject of your, of your week seven lecture. And I have a question about civil rights. And we, when we hear that term civil rights, our mind uh, turns to 
uh, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, the civil rights movement, the right to vote, and that sort of thing. Is gun ownership a civil right? I think uh, all of the rights in the Bill of Rights can fairly be defined as civil rights. They're all rights that are defined in terms of government, and um, they're rights that belong to individuals. I think the, the incredible thing about our United States Constitution, and distinct from the great majority of other constitutions around the world, is that we define rights in terms of the individual's ability not to be harmed by the government. Many other constitutions, and I've had the, the ability or the, um, the opportunity to work on some of them, define rights to housing and rights to food and rights to shelter and rights to clothing and rights to entertainment, all kinds of rights in which the government has to provide things to individuals in which other persons have to work hard to provide for those rights for other individuals. The great thing about our Constitution is how we give meaning to rights and how we define rights, and we do so by saying that the government cannot do things to you. They're, in a sense, negative rights. They're the right not to be subject to cruel and or an unusual punishment, not to be subject to unreasonable searches and seizures, not to be deprived of your religious freedoms and your right to speech, and, of course, in the context of the Second Amendment, not to be infringed in terms of your right to keep, or bear arm, keep and bear arms. And that phrase, keep and bear arms, is, is one of the key lines in, in the Second Amendment. And as you point out in your lecture, the word keep is, is critically important. Uh, what about the word arms? What exactly does that mean? It means guns, I suppose. Does it has it, does something it, to do with guns. Right. But does it mean bazookas? Does it mean uh, 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 rocket launchers? Does it mean bombs? Does it mean tasers? Uh, what do we mean by arms? Well, it's not absolutely clear what we mean by arms. There's all kinds of different arms that uh, could potentially be subject to protection there. And the Supreme Court, in its Heller case in 2008, was clear to say that uh, while giving uh, a full-throated uh, interpretation to the Second Amendment uh, to, to make clear that there were regulations that would still be available to the, uh, to the federal government under, under that provision. We don't know exactly what all those um, regulations and limitations might be. The court said um, we're not going to define them all in this case, and we expect that they'll be defined over a series of years by the lower courts and by the United States Supreme Court in individual decisions. So we don't know, but the court did say one thing that was interesting in that regard. They said not all weapons that could conceivably be protected by the amendment are to be protected, but those amendments that are typically used by persons in the course of self-defense and those weapons that have typically been used by American citizens exercising their Second Amendment freedoms over the course of the past several centuries. In your lecture, you ask, quote, would limiting the availability of firearms in the year 2016 render our society less or more safe? And you mentioned John Lott and his book, More Guns, Less Crime, which its thesis is right there in the title. If empirical data showed a different kind of result, in other words, uh, fewer guns and better crime control, would that jeopardize the Second Amendment? Well, that's a very good question. I'm not sure I clearly know the answer. I mean, the starting point is that with regard to guns, 
guns have the potential to harm, as we know, and guns also have the potential to protect. So there is a balance that needs to be undertaken in that regard, but the, the, the unusual element of guns is that because they have those two potentials, you tend to see one faction of Americans looking at the elephant from one direction and another faction of Americans looking at uh, gun use from a different direction. And I think the important thing that the Supreme Court did in the Heller case, even though it didn't resolve every conceivable dispute that, or controversy that could potentially arise under the Second Amendment, it made clear that at its base, at a minimum, the protections of the Second Amendment extended to recreational uses and self-defense. And now we have, now we're in a position to argue, you know, what beyond that, and what are the details of the, the, those protections, and what are the details of what arms are protected and not, and where, and what kinds of licensing schemes might be appropriate and not, and what categories of individuals might be limited in some respect in terms of their rights to keep and bear arms. But at least, if only by a five to four decision, we now have as the law of the land that there is a fundamental right to self-defense and recreational use that's protected by the Second Amendment. The problem is it's a very unstable situation we have. We have a five to four decision and um, you've got um, separate factions of Americans who feel extremely strongly about the issue. The parties have different perspectives. You have justices, obviously, who have different perspectives. And just as the decision was handed down in 2008 by the narrowest of margins, it's at least possible, it's at least potentially the case that by the narrowest of margins it can be reversed. So what is the role that social science should play in all of this? As we interpret the Constitution and its principles, and we look at social science data, how should judges use that? with great circumspection. I think the more important thing to be reviewed by judges and justices is what were the intentions of the framers uh, who enacted that part of the Constitution. To the extent that uh, gun use is viewed by Americans in, a, in an entirely different way or guns have evolved in some significant respect, uh, I don't think it's the job of judges looking to social science studies or or scholars to determine that the Constitution should uh, therefore be modified. I think uh, the standard for all constitutional interpretation has to be uh, what do the words of the law say, um, what do the concepts communicate, and what, um, what, was, uh, what were the intentions and purposes of those uh, persons who put those provisions into the Constitution and the people at that time. One person's reasonable regulation of guns is another person's unconscionable violation of a civil liberty, of course. I want to read to you a line from Hillary Clinton from the second presidential debate of 2016. We're having this conversation in October. We don't know how that presidential race will turn out. But here's what Hillary Clinton said in the second presidential debate. I respect the Second Amendment, but I believe there should be background checks and we should close the gun show loophole and close the online loophole. Are these kinds of expanded background checks involving the private sale of guns, are they, are they consistent with the Second Amendment? 
Well, I can't say we know for sure. The great question before us now is what kinds of regulations are consistent with the Second Amendment, which forbids infringements of the right to keep and bear arms. The court in the Heller case and several years later in the McDonald case, extending Second Amendment protections to the states, did not make clear all of that. And as a result, for the last uh, decade or so, we've had lower courts, not only federal courts, but state courts as well, attempting to give meaning to those kinds of things. And the jury just is not in yet. I wish that the U.S. Supreme Court had provided some more counsel and guidance on those kinds of things. But what they have made clear is that the kind of plenary uh, prohibitions that we saw on the part of the District of Columbia in the Heller case and the City of Chicago in the McDonald case in which handgun possession is largely forbidden and even where it's not forbidden in the home you have to do everything you can to place trigger locks and other things upon the weapons making them ineffectual for serious self-defense efforts we know that those kinds of black and white laws are incompatible with the Second Amendment. So if um, Heller is maintained and McDonald is maintained, at least we know that there is that foundation, that floor below which uh, governments cannot limit or regulate gun use. But in terms of things like gun shows and particular kinds of arms that are regulated and particular persons in places that are regulated, we just don't know for certain yet. When you're a Supreme Court justice and you confront a controversial case, you can make a narrow ruling, you can make a sweeping ruling. What are the kinds of decisions that go into to that when you, when, you, when you have that choice in front of you? Well, often it's a matter of what I'll call judicial politics. We're talking about appellate courts here. In our, my Michigan Supreme Court has seven justices. The U.S. Supreme Court has nine justices. And um, it's awful hard to get seven or nine independent persons of widely disparate viewpoints to agree in terms of the definition of a right. So it's often the case that there needs to be compromises and there needs to be modifications in terms of uh, uh, how aggressive decisions are articulated. Uh, I'm not talking, when I talk about politics, I'm not talking about partisan politics. I'm just talking about the kind of politics that are a natural part anytime you have an institution which decision-making is made by more than one person. Well, I'll read back to you a line from your lecture. You said, should the federal government, quote, ever become abusive toward the states, there would be some point of state resistance, the armed citizen militias, unquote. Are you saying we need the Second Amendment so that we can have insurrections? I'm saying that the what, what I thought was probably the most interesting part of the United States Supreme Court's decision, a five to four decision in the Heller case, was their conclusion that the right to keep and bear arms in the Second Amendment was not the principal focus of that amendment. That it is, it was not to place into the Constitution the right to keep and bear arms because there was consensus that there was such a right in the Republic and it was a right again that preceded the new Constitution. The real impetus according to the majority in the Heller case was to provide the right to keep and bear arms to citizens militias in each of the states so that there would be some 
alternative to the monopoly that otherwise would have been possessed by the standing army at the federal level. Yes, if you look at Madison's statements in The Federalist and you look at Scalia's statements in support of the majority's opinion in Heller, they both stand for the proposition that there was an interest on the part of the framers in having some kind of alternative to um, an armed standing army uh, that was essentially at the behest of the uh, national government. They wanted something so that, in fact, there would be an opportunity to respond if there were aggressions on the part of the national government. In that institution they wanted to be able to respond was a citizen's militia, and as a result, they felt there was a need to have the right to keep and bear arms belonging to those citizens who were typically not involved in the militia unless they were called into operation in order to uh, act as part of the militias. But they needed access to guns at all times, whether they were acting as citizens or acting as members of the militia. Last question, we're running out of time. This is not about the Second Amendment. It's about the operations of the court or courts. And that is, should, should we have television cameras <laughs> in courtrooms? And I know we, that many courtrooms do have TV cameras. Uh, there are TV cameras in the Michigan State Supreme Court where you're a, you are a, a justice, but we do not have television cameras in the U.S. Supreme Court. Should we have them? Should we have C-SPAN for the Supreme Court? I absolutely think so. I may have had some apprehensions or reservations of my own when we first introduced cameras, but um, over time you get, to ignore those, you, you, you get to ignore those cameras, and I think they're extraordinarily important for those citizens, and I don't suggest there are a majority of citizens that sit um, you know, enraptured by what we're doing in, in our appellate arguments, but uh, when you consider the importance of the appellate judiciary, particularly the United States Supreme Court, I do think that that process has to be made more open. And I understand the concerns that um, the justices might have about those cameras in the courtroom, but I think on balance, given the enormous importance of the decisions they're making and the enormity of the thought processes that they're bringing to bear in those decisions, the people of the United States are entitled to witness that process just as they now witness the processes in the national legislature, thanks to C-SPAN. We're out of time. Stephen Markman, thank you very much. This concludes week seven of Hillsdale College's online course on the Supreme Court. To learn more about our online courses, come to our website at online.hillsdale.edu.